Clarence Gaines is our guest, and he was part of that uh, Chicago Bulls run where they won six championships. I want to move on to Scottie Pippen. Uh, life without Scotty. The injury he was rehabbing, uh, he did not play a portion of the season. And there was a lot of consternation that unfolded during that time. But to me, from what I gathered, uh, there was frustration, obviously, because the Bulls weren't winning as much as they thought they should. But I thought it was probably the first telltale signs of Michael Jordan's leadership skills starting to elevate, where he knew he had to be more than just a guy who was scoring because he had to work with what he had. And I thought it was a real learning process for him. Give me your thoughts on that time without Scotty. Uh, well, I'll disagree with you on one thing. Michael's uh, leadership skills, to, to me, formed uh, during that first run of the uh, championship. And, you know, one thing, and I'll, I'll come back to Scotty, but I, I think this is a very important point. And that first year uh, where Phil takes over, in uh, the 1989-90 season, and then we won the championship in 1991, they're introducing the triangle offense. And there was a lot of resistance from Michael in terms of um, this offensive system because why? He had Doug Collins, and Doug Collins catered the entire offense around Michael. And you know, every play was basically designed to get Michael the ball at the end and, you know, either score or pass. Michael, if you look at when he was dug, not that they were efficient assists, but his assist average was higher then than later on because he handled the ball so much. <clears throat> but Michael started, and I don't even want to say start. You got to look at the foundation of who Michael was as a basketball player and who coached him. Dean Smith coached him in college. I don't know about Michael's high school coach. I would assume they did a pretty good job. I know Michael went to a lot of different summer camps and got a lot of experience there. He went to Howard Garfinkel's five-star camp, which is an extremely good camp. And, uh, you know, he really developed a reputation. And uh, by the end of his senior year, people thought of him as the, the best player in, in, in the country. But going to Carolina and being coached by Dean Smith, uh, and having that man um, guide you through the process. There's a book that I read uh, about Dean, and it's called The Carolina Way. And in their book is the mission statement for Carolina basketball. And it's play hard, play smart, and play together. And Michael's teams at Carolina, they played smart. They played hard. They played together. But when he got with the Bulls initially, because of the level team, he played hard. Did he play smart? And did he play together basketball? I would say not really. But when Phil came in, introduced the triangle offense, and then Michael bought into it, he came back to his roots. And that's when the Bulls started to ascend. To me, that's when Michael became a leader that he really doesn't get credit for. And where this is really highlighted, and they bring it up in the movie, is the Lakers series, the closing game, uh, the fifth game, where um, Phil forcefully says to Michael, who's open? Who's open, Michael? And he says, John Paxson. Michael started 
distributing the basketball to John Paxson, they made his life easy. So Michael already established that ability, and he doesn't get credit for it in terms of making other people better. And that was, to me, way back when. And Michael makes other people better just by the energy he brings to the floor in practice, outside of practice. You know, one of the things they talked about when they lost that, when we lost the Piston uh, series in the 1989-90, uh, you know, with, with Scotty's migraine, is Michael went out and got himself a strength coach. Everybody else working with uh, Al Vermeule and Eric Kellen at the Bulls room. But there was a commitment made by everybody just to be better. And you hear uh, Scotty Pippen talk about Michael basically taught me how to be professional. People know about the breakfast club you know, between Michael, Scotty, and Hart. They get up at 6 a.m., do their little thing, and then go out and, and work out. So he had established that culture of uh, of having a high work ethic. So that took me a long time, but I think it's a lot of depth that people need to understand. To get to your point, Scotty, he was already raising and elevating his game, but he only had took time for that team to learn to play without Scotty. And it's not, it wasn't unusual during the, uh, that period for the Bulls to start off slow, not that slow, but it was basically eight and seven record. Uh, after that Pacers game that they highlight. And Dennis is the one who really makes a commitment to say, I'm not going to let my teammates down. And from that game on, they played 80% basketball until uh, Pip came back. So life without Scotty, like a lot of situations when you don't have a key figure, um, helps other people grow. So that when a pipping comes back, the team is even stronger. So I would say that's kind of what happened um, during that time frame and time period. The other thing is Pip's animosity towards the Bulls because he didn't want to come back. He wanted to be traded. But he knew that wasn't going to happen. And you can guarantee there was back-channel discussions with Michael and uh, PJ saying, we have to do this for the group. You're going to be taken care of down the road because he was in the last year of his contract, and he was taken care of. Scotty made the majority of his uh, not majority. He made tremendous amount of money after he left the Bulls, and part of that was facilitated by a sign and trade deal, which back then that allowed a player to get even more money than they could do in free agency. And uh, if you look at career earnings, Scotty actually uh, made more career earnings in basketball. Than Michael Jordan did, which a lot of people would find astonishing. Let's move on and talk a little bit about that that Detroit Piston Ball Club. Uh, this was the bugaboo for the Chicago Bulls. Uh, they had their real problems with them, and they had to <clears throat> excuse me change their approach thanks to the Detroit Pistons and their style of play. What was it like for that organization knowing that we can't get to the mountaintop until we climb over Detroit? Oh wow. <laughs> You had to bring in players uh, who not only complimented, excuse me, um, Michael, but you know who could stand the gas against the punishment and the style of play uh, that the 
Detroit Pistons brought to uh, to bear. You know, Detroit Pistons, if you look at people who have impacted basketball and things had to change, like everybody, not everybody, because there's a lot of young people on here. Um, Wilt Chamberlain was a player who caused the lane in the NBA to be uh, widened, you know, and went from actually being the key, if you look back in time, to being born 12 feet to 15 feet because they had to get Wilt out of the paint. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar changed the game in terms of you couldn't dunk, so they outlawed the dunk. How did the Pistons change the game, Michael? They changed the game from the standpoint that the league's had to find a way to make this game more friend, fan-friendly and to uh, change the rules so that you couldn't beat the hell out of players like a Michael Jordan. And Phil was always chirping at the, the referees in the league uh, that you know they got to referee and look at the rules from a different standpoint to uh, allow the beauty of this game to actually be expressed. Now, it didn't happen right away, and I think you heard that in terms of in the, in, in the comments. So we had to get players who could stand up to that. Or, internally within, our players had to get tougher. And that's exactly what happened. Um, and this kind of goes against a maxim that Jerry Krause used to have on his, ball, on his wall, because I actually believe this to be true. But this is the force of personality that Michael is, that he can make players he can impact the competitive character at a later stage of life and jerry jerry had this the saying on his wall and he says you don't coach toughness you draft it and that kind of cuts to the heart of it is once you get to the stage of life you know you are tough and you're not tough you're not going to change that aspect of a person you can also say the same thing uh, uh, uh you don't expect character to change to a significant degree when you are um, in the NBA. So you need to draft guys who are high character guys. But uh, with, with, with our team, Scotty, after the migraine incident, got tougher. Um, Horace continued to get stronger and got tougher. So the change happened from within the organization and obviously, outside, you look for pieces. But mainly, it happened internally, and it was a dynamic process. It was a beautiful process to, to watch unfold. Uh, I want to give a shout-out to a guy who gets maligned a lot, and that's Bill Cartwright. And, you know, Bill Cartwright was uh, for Jerry Krause's first big trade. And, and, and Jerry had to give up a guy he probably considered his son because that was his first draft pick in Charles Oakley. And that was Michael's protector. And Michael didn't want Jerry to make this trade. And, you know, he was upset about it. But Bill brought a certain level of toughness to our team that you just couldn't uh, replace. Um, And and I think I mentioned in the last series when we go against the Patrick Ewing Knicks, how Bill's able to individually guard Patrick without us having a double team. And this series... Bill also provides that type of presence for you. A lot of people forget when Bill first came in the league, he averaged uh, 20 points and about eight rebounds for the New York Knicks and then went through the injury period. So he was an accomplished player, even though Michael wants to malign him so you don't want to put the ball in his hands in the last um, five minutes. Uh, But the other thing that happened, um, because if you looked at 
style of basketball we played back then in terms of the triangle offense. If we continue with Doug Collins, not that Doug's team went up that long against, I think he might have played his last series. Yeah, the, the year Doug, in a lot of people's eyes, was shockingly fired, 1989, 90. You know, everybody uh, remembers the Cleveland game, but they don't remember that, uh, you know, the Bulls just weren't ready for the Detroit Pistons. And that's because in the style of basketball Doug played, uh, you could easily control a player like Michael Jordan with with the way the game, with the way the Bulls were playing. And, you know, you heard uh, Brendan Malone talk about the Jordan, the rules. And, uh, you know, he, he gave us three things that they did, uh, and I'm going to mention them. But there's one thing he didn't say. But then he said, on the wings, when Michael gets the ball on the wings, what do you do? You push him into the elbow. Don't let him drive baseline. When he gets the ball on top of the floor, you influence him to his left. Pretty standard. And when you're low post, you trap him from the top. <laughs> but Brendan didn't mention the other ones, but the players did. When Michael gets in the paint, you put him on his ass. And uh, the, uh, the triangle offense lessened their impact to do those things because you never knew where Michael was going to come from. There's so many ways that you could get Michael the ball in his chosen spot. So it's a less predictable offense, which involved everybody. So from that standpoint, I would say that's how we ended up getting over that hurdle with the Pistons. And that team, you know, there's, there's a tremendous uh, um, proverb in the Bible. And iron sharpens up iron, one man sharpens another. And, and we're thankful to this day for how the Pistons helped sharpen uh, uh, the Bulls into a championship team. They were really the foil for for the uh, the Bulls as far as motivating them to be better because some teams may have taken the ball and gone home and said, oh, well. But you mentioned the fact, and it was certainly documented in the in the series, that the Bulls recommitted themselves and they, they pushed themselves and each other to a level that I wonder if some of them even knew they had in them. Michael, you, you never know what you have in you until you, you, you um, um, are tested. And, but I think, they, you know, with the fact that you went to seven games in the 1989-90 series, you knew it had, you just had to be able to get over that one game. I will say something about this, though. Think back to when Michael Jordan, a sophomore in high school, at Laney High School in Wilmington. In his mind, he gets cut from the team when he's actually assigned to the junior varsity. You know, there's a great article in Sports Illustrated with that. And that basically that allowed, it gave Michael an opportunity to play at a lower level until he grew and developed. And then his junior year, he comes and crushes people. But what did Dolores Short say? She didn't go to the coach and complain. She said, Michael, you just have to work harder. So that fire, that that lesson was taught to Michael by his mom at an extremely young age, at a pivotal time in his life. So that carries over, obviously, to when he gets to Chicago, carried over day after he got cut or was assigned to the JV team. I like to use that word. Michael wouldn't like to use that word. And it's everyday approach to the game of the basketball. And I love when B.J. Um, Armstrong talks about 
the impact and effect that Michael had on players. And mentioned Scotty Pippen. And so Scotty didn't have that work ethic, uh, that drive was the word he used, to bring that intensity day in and day out. But from being around Michael, he learned that. And that leads me to a question I'm going to throw out to you, you know, because where, what happens to you in life and where you are and who you're surrounded by matters in life. Would Scotty Pippen have been as great as he turned out to be if he wasn't selected by the Chicago Bulls and had the opportunity no. to play with answer, Michael Jordan? The answer is no. And be coached by the people he was coached with. The, the answer is no. I, I think that um, there are certain players who have to be in the midst of what I call the perfect storm, uh, surrounding, organization, coaching, and their time to, to flourish. And I think it, it's got to have been drafted by somebody else in a different time. I'm not sure if he would have been the player he, he's, he ended up becoming, uh, a Hall of Famer, by the way. And I think that applies for a few great players that probably needed to be in that situation. I look at football. Uh, would Tom Brady be as good of a quarterback as he was or is had he not been with Bill Belichick at that time? And I always look at that situation where Brady only really played with one other Hall of Famer on offense, and that was Randy Moss for a year. So, you know, he had to be in the right situation where he had a good defense. They gave him the ball in short distances. He had good possession receivers. And I think Scotty was a guy who really was in the middle of that situation where everything came together at the right time. And and so, again, my answer would be no. Uh, I don't think he'd be that guy. It's a fair point, and it's one that's up to debate. But it's a question that a lot of people don't throw out there. And I, and I think that uh, you're really on the right track. Yeah. Michael would have been great no matter where he went. He, he's just that type of personality, uh, had that type of drive instilled in him at a young age of all the experiences that happened to him. And But uh, Scotty definitely uh, was blessed in terms of where he eventually ended up. And we were blessed to get him, too. So that's the beauty of a... Um, uh, of being around the right environment, right time, like you said, a perfect storm. In Tom Brady's case, definitely a perfect storm for him. Uh, being around who we have to acknowledge is one of the greatest coaches in sports history, no matter what sport it is, Bill Belichick. Clarence Gaines is our guest. We invite you to stick around. We've got more talk from The Last Dance, and it comes your way after we have a chance to hear these important messages. Munganass St. Louis Acura would like to extend a huge thank you to our healthcare workers and first responders by offering them several service specials, including a free interior detail cleaning. You can call them today to make your appointment and let them help you while you are helping our community. Find them online at stlouisacura.com or give them a call 314-822-2872 for Munganass St. Louis Acura. Hey, Mike Claiborne here, and by the way, thanks for listening to ClavesOnline.com. Before we go any further, coming up next, I want to introduce you to one of my friends from Ameren, Illinois. He's the Vice President of Gas Operations. He is Eric Kozak. That's right, they're not just an electric company, they're also a gas delivery provider. Now, when you talk about smelling and locating gas and the potential for you to have a problem, what are some of the problems 
and some of the issues a customer could have aside from as the eventual, perhaps an explosion of some sort. So what are some of the other concerns you try and maintain? Yeah, so our number one concern is uh, calling 811 before you dig. 811 is a national number. People will come out and they will mark the lines for you and let you know where your gas service is. So if you're putting in a basketball hoop or you're putting in a bush, call 811. Because if you don't call 811, you might have to call 911. <laughs> and we want to prevent that call. So that's the main issue is people calling 811 before you dig so you know where the pipelines are in the ground. Is there a charge for that? There's no charge for 811. <laughs> in a situation where you're going to do some work, as you mentioned, how deep do you have to go before you would hit on a gas line? You know, I, if you're sticking in a shovel in the ground, you should call 811. You know, we don't, uh, you know, we put our uh, pipes in, you know, 24 inches for service and 30 inches, but landscape change over time. You know, different things happen. You don't know what the previous homeowner did. He might have took a bunch of dirt off. So if you're going to stick a shovel in the ground, you need to call 811 before you dig. And I just want people to know that, you know, natural gas is a clean, reliable, safe fuel. But like any source of energy, it can be dangerous. So if you do smell gas, you know, pick up the phone and call us. We respond 24-7, seven days a week, no charge, ever. And we respond on average within 22 minutes. Over 33,000 calls a year we get, and our average response time is around 22 minutes. And I think that's pretty good. I think it's impressive. So that's, that's the main thing is. And have your equipment checked out, and it's a wonderful product you can use for many, many years worry-free. Clarence Gaines is our guest, and I want to move on and talk a little bit about Phil Jackson, a guy that's near and dear to you and, and a guy you learned a lot from and vice versa. Uh, an interesting piece on how they chronicled, chronicled his career, his family background. Uh, your first encounter with Phil Jackson, and when did you know he was a little bit different than what you'd encountered before? Because you came through a basketball life in your family with your dad being a Hall of Fame coach and experienced a lot of different people. But what was your first experience like with Phil Jackson? Uh, you'll be surprised what I'm going to say. 1975, I'm a junior in high school. Obviously, I followed the New York Knicks team because my dad's greatest player was a part of their championship run. Not the first one, but the second one in terms of Earl Monroe. But there's this player out of North Dakota who's also in the 1967 draft. I can, uh, I'm just going to mention this quickly and I'll get back to Phil and what I'm going to talk about. I, I, I write blog posts at times and, uh, and I had this blog post I read when small college basketball wasn't small. And I mentioned several players and I deal with the 1967 draft and deal with three players specifically in that draft. Earl Monroe, Winston-Salem State, won the college division championship. Uh, Earl averaged over 40 points a game, one of the greatest top 50 players of all time. Clyde, Walt Clyde Frazier, who a lot of people might not know at this time, was a college division player, played at Southern Illinois University. They didn't go to the college division championship in that same year where they could have faced my dad's team. They went to the NIT, which is a legit tournament at the time. I mean, very legit. Some people, I can even remember years later, um, Marquette team coached by Al McGuire turned down going to the NCAA to go to the NIT. Most people would be astounded at that, to hear that. But a small college team led by Walt Frazier went in and they won the NIT. 
And then Phil Jackson comes from North Dakota, which was a really good team at that time. Coached by two, eventually two head coaches in the NBA. You know, Bill Fitch being one of them and Jimmy Rogers being the other, who became Phil's assistant on the second three peak. So that leads back to, I said, 1975. I'm not in the NBA. I don't know Phil personally, but this is a player that I'm attracted to because he does the little things that I can relate to because I wasn't a very good basketball player. I was a good athlete. I was a good football player. I played college football. I picked up this book called Maverick. Which they actually mentioned in the uh, in the broadcast, written by uh, Charlie Rosen, Phil's great friend. And you'll hear that Phil come out with the term "maverick" uh, in talking about Dennis Rodman or someone else. And that's when I connected with Phil uh, as a person through his book, the first book. And I got the opportunity to meet him, obviously, when I was with the Bulls, and that was in the nineteen. 19- um, 89 draft um, when uh, Phil was still an assistant coach at that time and Jerry was a, a few months away from uh, firing Doug Collins which I knew was coming because Jerry was talking about that but in terms of Phil as we get into talking about him it's been well documented through books and writing uh, and a lot of people have a thought process about who Phil was, but one of the best ways to understand Phil, and he talks about it, and that he views himself as a transformative versus transactional leader, and he's interested in transforming people that he can in contact with in a positive way, and it's not bullshit. It's who he is, and it's genuine and it's authentic. People feel that his players feel that, and I think you saw that uh, by their comments in the documentary. Phil is interested in the whole person and helping you grow in all facets of your life, not just in the game of basketball. And uh, he has his unique ways. And when he called uh, Dennis Rodman, uh, a term that uh, a Native American tribe utilized called Hayoka. H- a backward walking person. Dennis connected with that. And in some ways, Phil in his own uh, way is a Hoyoka as well. You know, a, a person who's a little bit different. So is Jerry Crow, you know, and that's what's the beauty in life. You know, a lot of people want to have um, cookie cutter people in the same position, but that doesn't make, for a good blend and doesn't make for um, a, a good organization or a good team. You have to have diversity, not only in racial terms, but in thought and in skill set to bring out the best in a, in a group format. So the other thing people need, hold up, the other thing people need to know about Phil, because he's known as a, a, a great teacher, but he's a greater student. He's an extremely curious individual who is going to take an interest in you and ask questions. And if you look at the Chicago Bulls organization, you know, the last episode, the last podcast we had, I talked a little bit about Tex Winter 
and how important Tex was in Jerry's mind. <clears throat> but the two coaches before Phil didn't utilize Tex in the way that Jerry wanted them to in terms of making him a coach of coaches. So what did Krause do about that? He hired – first of all, Jerry comes to the organization. Kevin Lockery's the coach. After that first brush with Kevin Lockery, Kevin Lockery's fired. Jerry hires Stan Albach. Probably signed him on a multi-year deal. Spent one year with him fired him. Three years with Doug Collins. Team takes off with Doug. Because he was the right guy for the team at the time. What did Doug do? And, and it's kind of implied, but it's not explicitly stated. He basically cast Tex aside, took him off the bench, and didn't seek his input. If he had any sense, he would have knew right there and there he was fired. But what did Phil do? He developed a relationship with Tex when they were assistants. He's being a student. He says, this is a guy I can learn from. Not only did they text teach him and answer his questions, but the Bulls had a summer league team. And I would actually go to their summer league uh, uh, games uh, during this time frame. Tex would teach the triangle offense to the summer league team. And guess who was his assistant on the summer league team? Phil Jackson. So Phil's learning this offensive system in a laboratory that summer league with new players coming in. Uh, and I think that's very important to understand uh, about Phil as people think of him as a great communicator. Uh, his temperament is also uh, something that was very attractive, especially when you compare it to Doug, 180 degree opposite in terms of their impact and effect on a group over a long period of time. He's a great lister, but being a student of the game uh, and a student of life and being an inquisitive person, uh, qualities that uh, uh, you know, I really want to highlight to the listener. You mentioned uh, the Indian term, uh, walking backwards. What's it, Yoka? Hoyoka. Hoyoka. So yeah. you said both Phil and Jerry were Hoyokas. Did they virtually back into each other is where the disconnect took place between those two? <laughs> Michael, you're trying to be a, a, a joke writer here, aren't you? <laughs> uh, they're, different, they're different types of Hoyokas, ho- ho- you know? Uh, if, you, if you look at Phil in the early 60s, uh, I guess you... Phil, Phil, you have to really go back, and he did a good job of this in terms of talking about his upbringing and who his mother and father were and where he was brought up. And, you know, the one, one thing that uh, you know I look at in terms of when I'm talking to um, young players, you know, I break scouting down into five broad categories. And one of the categories is sociological side. I have to know how society has shaped and impacted an individual. You know, who has impacted and influenced them? And the, the uh, documentary did a good job of highlighting Phil's. Uh, parents and their religious background. Both of them were evangelists, ministers, and his mother was more extreme than the father in terms of believing in the rapture and the second coming of um, Jesus uh, within her lifetime. And you know, I think Phil makes the comment that I was more interested in playing games and 
praying on my knees, you know, but still that's a part of who he is uh, in, in terms of that. And then where he's brought up in terms of Montana and North Dakota with the heavy Native American influence, uh, that rubbed off of him as well. And, uh, you know, he would have these things up in, uh, that he, they alluded to uh, in his office and up in the team room that Native American artifacts uh, go around with sage in the Virgo Center, cleansing the team room. Just a different kind of guy from that standpoint. Jerry Krause is a different kind of Hayoka. Not as polished, not as confident uh, in who he was. Uh, and as comfortable in his skin as Phil was, um, but uh, trying to figure out how he could negotiate his path in life, not being the best people person. And uh, 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 Slick Leonard gave him his first opportunity, and there's a good article in the uh, Indianapolis paper because Slick, you probably know who he is. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, he, well, yeah, he was a great coach. I mean, he had the Indiana Pacers in the ABA and had stuck around. Right. I mean, he was Mr. Indiana as far as I was concerned. I mean, I know Bob Knight is certainly a legend there, but uh, you couldn't cross the border unless you knew who Slick Leonard was. Well, Slick was uh, the guy that gave Jerry Cross his first job when there was the Chicago Zephyrs, which ended up becoming the, the Baltimore Bullets. And Slick talks about who Jerry was at that time. And, and he was talking about this guy who shows up with a, a guy who's on the team. Jerry was working with the Chicago Cubs at the time, working in baseball, uh, wanted to take notes. Slick saw that. Slick hired him. So Jerry put, and he said, yeah, he's a little different. But I appreciated that difference because he was very diligent in trying to uh, understand talent. So, you know, I would I would tell the, the listener if they're really interested, and I, I'm going to link that article on my uh, Twitter feed. That, that's a good article to read about uh, uh, Jerry Krause as well. So, you know, they're both a little bit Hoyokas. In some ways, we all are. But, you know, they're, they're two different types. So, no, their, their paths wouldn't have crossed in that respect in terms of backing into each other. He's Clarence Gaines. I'm Mike Claiborne. Thank you for listening, folks. We've got a lot more coming your way. We've got a few other issues to address regarding episodes three and four of The Last Dance this week. Stand by, folks. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're glad you're part of it here on ClaibsOnline.com. Brought to you by Ameren, Illinois, Munganast Automotive Group, and certainly Fast Eddie's Bonaire that will be coming your way soon right here on ClaibsOnline.com.